In the beginning was a sound, and the sound brought forth all matter, all life itself, birthed in the beauty of sound, carried by those good vibrations. As this, our 20th summer school, begins its last full day, we're called to give thanks to all those whose vision brought the first and other summer schools into being, and to honour those who are no longer with us. We build on foundations we did not lay. We warm ourselves at fires we did not light. We sit in the shade of trees we did not plant. We drink from wells we did not dig. And our lives are filled with gifts from people we may never have met. We We are are ever in in community. And we owe so much to those who are no longer with us. And so we name... With love, Sheila Jones. With love, Jean Mason. With love, Trevor Jones. With love, Patricia Walker-Hessen. With love... Simon John Barlow. And others whose vision (coughs) and generosity helped to create and develop the idea of a summer school like this. And can we also think now of Caroline and Jim Blair, enthusiastic supporters of summer schools over many years who are now facing great challenges. And I invite you to think as well of those who have inspired your own life journey some of whom we may have named this week. Your friends, your family members, your work colleagues, well-known people perhaps who have made a difference to the path of your life. I'm going to ask you to sit or stand as you feel able for a moment of quiet recognition, which will come to an end with some gentle piano music. Let's stand or sit in silent remembering.
Each of the people that we have named and those you've thought of from your own lives, they passed something on to you. Some inner light, some spark, some sense of possibility made real. Sheila and Jean and Patricia, Simon John and Trevor, they all worked in their different ways to have summer school happen and succeed, just one of the many areas of interest in their rich and full lives. And this week, their gift has been ours to enjoy. This community of the spirit has been passed to new hands and will be passed on again. This opportunity to step out of our everyday lives and take time instead for reflection, to seek new inspirations, to be given fresh ideas to ponder, new experiences to remember. A week like this reminds me of those who were here before us and those of us who are here together now and those of the future, people as yet unknown, into whose hands we will at some time pass a gift and it reminds me of the web of interconnectedness that joins each of us with all of existence (coughs) it reminds me that what we do and how we are makes a difference years ago science fiction ray science fiction writer ray bradbury wrote a story about the way an event may trigger a completely unconnected effect sometime in the future. And this idea was developed by mathematician Edward Lorenz to explain chaos theory. The Lorenz effect, as it came to be known, tells us that the flapping of a butterfly's wings in a distant rainforest may change the course of a storm somewhere in a faraway land in the weeks or months ahead. Everything everything that happens here on planet Earth impinges in some generally (coughs) unknown and unpredictable way on something else because we are all part of the same system, planet Earth. And so, Eliza and Ilaria, Claire and Izzy kindly created some butterflies for us. I'm going to ask you, would you mind showing your butterflies now? Come, would you mind coming to the front and maybe moving around in the way that butterflies do? <laughs> and as we flap them around a bit, our hope is that in a few weeks' time, this gentle flapping, and maybe you would like to join in even now with your own wings. <laughs> Maybe this will mean that the rain that we're having in abundance here this week (laughs) will turn up somewhere far away where they haven't had any rain for years. (laughs) Eliza, where might we like this rain to go? A desert, perhaps, where rain is badly needed. And the people we have never met will be very glad to feel that rain. And so as our butterflies fly off, thank you very much, all of you, to find sweet flowers, would you join me in singing a hymn together? It's number 21, Come and Find the Quiet Centre. (coughs) 
So here we are on Friday morning, still resting between the dreaming and the coming true. And this morning I want to talk about the importance of making time like this for reflection in life, finding that quiet centre in the crowded lives we lead. There are many methods for reflecting on life, and in this morning's theme talk, I want to explore just one such method. I'm going to be talking about what's known as systems thinking, or thinking systemically, as a way of helping us to reflect on the situations we find ourselves in. I'm advocating reflection and study as useful stages between the dreaming and the coming true. It's the place we've been encouraged, isn't it, all week to explore in our theme talks, in our morning engagement groups, in lots of other activities. It's valuable to take this time out to ponder, to look at life from a different angle, to slow down the rush of everyday existence, to take breath, to take stock, to wait, perhaps, for something new to emerge. To give ourselves space to discern what our most helpful next steps might be. In our morning group, we've been encouraged to name some of our hopes and dreams for our lives. And one of mine, I've realised, is to find a way to explain systems thinking to people as a tool for better understanding what happens in our Unitarian congregations. Now, this is a task for the next few years, and I may or I may not achieve it. And today's talk is merely a step along the way. And I hope this talk will still be of some use, even if you've never set foot inside a Unitarian church door, apart from the chapel here in Great Hucklow, that is, that we've walked to each evening in our silent, candlelit processions. Because systems thinking is thinking about systems, and systems are everywhere when it comes to us humans. We could think about families, we could think about environmental issues, healthcare, politics, economics, culture, particular sports as systems. So although I'm focusing primarily on church congregations, there may be insights that shine a light on some aspect of life that really interests you. I described this summer school earlier on as a community of the spirit, and I could also have described it as a system. So what is a system and what is systems thinking? Now, although you'll find definitions on that yellow sheet, it's probably not something you want to be reading through in depth today. And people go on systems courses for years on end, and at the end, one of the questions they're often asked is, so what is systems thinking? (laughs) So feel free with those yellow sheets today to scribble on them, doodle on them, make your own notes on the handouts. And I've put my email address at the bottom, and I'd be really happy to hear from you sometime in the future, and I can email you another copy of this if a digital version would be useful. 
and that goes for all our podcast listeners too. Please get in touch if you'd like a handout sometime in the future. So we can say that a system is a set of things, any things. It could be people, but it probably won't just be people. It could be cells, it could be molecules, it could be shops, it could be sports clubs. They are things that are interconnected in some way. And systems thinking is a way of thinking that pays as much attention to the connections between the elements of the system as it does to the things themselves. Systems thinking considers systems within their wider context rather than simply as isolated. And it tries to remain open to varying perspectives. Over time, the interconnected parts of a system create their own behaviours they tend to behave in the same sorts of ways in relating with one another. So I don't know if people want to give shout out any examples of systems that you can think of. Anything at all. Families. Families for sure, yeah. A classic. My Morris team. Your Morris team is indeed a system and a very interesting one too, Michael. <laughs> Circle dancing, yes. Computer networks. networks. Orchestras. Orchestras. Workplaces. Workplaces. Sports. Sports. Schools. Hospitals. Gardens. Parish councils. Parish councils. (laughs) Global economy. Global economy. Teams. Teams. Supermarkets. Supermarkets. You get the idea. They're everywhere. And... They, of course, interrelate with one another. They're not just separate beings. And we ourselves will be in many systems. It's an interesting exercise when you've got a spare hour or two to actually start jotting down all the different systems of which you might be part or which your life is affected by. And why do I think systems thinking is valuable? Well, let's try a really simple experiment. As with all Unitarian activities, there is a pass option. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do, but this one is very small and harmless. Just fold your arms. The way you might if you're already starting to get bored with the theme talk. (laughs) One arm naturally falls on top of the other. Just look down now and notice which one is on top. and Just notice how this feels. Is it comfortable? Feels, mm-hmm. feels normal. Well, now uncross your arms and fold them again the other way with the other arm on top. <laughs> and how does that feel? Not right. Strange. It's remarkably hard. You can do it as well, interlocking your fingers. That's another way of showing this. For most of us, not all, it feels a bit uncomfortable simply to cross our arms in a different way. And, of course, you can use this as an analogy for how we feel when we're asked to learn something new or to look at habitual situations in a new way. Our human need to be comfortable and to feel secure can really get in the way of our learning and our development. Systems thinking reminds us that systems have a tendency, once they get going, to be remarkably resistant to change. Now, this isn't inherently a bad thing. 
It's completely understandable. If you think of a, a young family as a system, for example, it does work better, doesn't it, if everyone knows who is going to be cooking tea that night or washing clothes or where each person will sleep or what time you'll get up. Without structures and habits and traditions, we are in chaos. And this is often an exhausting and unproductive place to be, <coughs> though not always. And that, indeed, is another talk, the delights of chaos. Uh, but if we consider church as a system, for example, on the one hand, it probably is a sensible idea to have a set time for our services and to stick to the date that we planned for those committee meetings and AGMs. But just take a moment to think of a church or some other institution that you know and love and of some difficulty you've been aware of there when somebody did something different. I asked Jane if she was okay with me sharing this story of our congregation, Kensington Unitarians. You, you probably know we're open, we're flexible, we're easygoing and we're very willing to try new ideas. The information sheet that we send out to visiting worship leaders gives them our standard order of service, but then specifically says that we welcome changes. <laughs> a, visiting, <laughs> a visiting worship leader sent in his order of service last year, and we both did a sharp intake of breath. <laughs> because do you know what he'd done? He'd cut the number of hymns from four to three. <laughs> now that is a bit too radical. <laughs> Even for Kensington. <laughs> I dare say you may have a few examples of your own. If not from church, perhaps, then from a workplace or day centre that you belong to, a club or a friendship group. And it's perhaps best to only tell stories about ourselves here rather than launch into complaints about others. But do you have any example from your own life of a resistance to change? You might just want to think for a moment. Having a baby. <laughs> Having a baby. <laughs> I'm not sure if I should ask you to go into more details. But <laughs> There's a very big change yeah. in your life. Yes, it is. It's a great shock. And it's something that people long for and then moan bitterly about. I, I have heard. I think changing things within like, home situation is quite hard because you quickly get into kind of routines of who does what in unspoken Yes, yes, very much so. We, and of course, we need our routines. It would be chaotic if we didn't have them. And yet, I think we can sense sometimes, can't we, that they limit us, those routines and habits. Yes, well... When I was a member of the Glasgow Unitarian Church, we proposed, some people proposed we move from the top floor of the tent with yes. all the light that streamed in to the ground floor where people could look in and see mm. us as a church. And most of us did not want to give up yeah. our beloved space, even though newcomers had to wind up narrow stairs yeah. and wondering where the hell they were going. Yes. And, but we took a year 
<laughs> before we eventually all decided we would try it. And we all agreed at the end that it was such an obviously correct decision. <laughs> yes. It's a lovely example. Thank you for that, Ralph. And interesting, the process that you went through yeah. in order to achieve that change. I think that's important that we gave ourselves time. Mm. Yes, thank you. Anything else? Yes, Sue. Yeah, when, when I was uh, appointed as district facilitator for the Midlands Unitarian Association, it was decided that I should meet with um, the small subcommittee who was responsible for employing me for an hour before the main meeting that we have five times a year, which meant that we had to change the time of the main meeting by half an hour. And I cannot tell you how long it took people to yes. understand that the time of the meeting had changed. Yes. Thank you. We are creatures of habit, aren't we? Thank you for those examples, and I'm sure there'll be time later to talk about more that you may have. When, when I asked um, a church committee in a Midlands congregation where I was about to start a student pastorate what I might do that could upset them, <laughs> the reply came, make us light candles. <laughs> now, I have... I did check with them that I could tell this story because I wrote an essay about it at some point. Now, I had expected, to be honest, some deep answer about our theological differences, <laughs> but fair enough, they were more concerned about the candles. So we didn't light candles for some months. But when we reached November, I asked them about their Christmas service traditions and they told me about their long tradition of dressing the tree in a very moving ritual which involved lighting lots and lots of candles. <laughs> It'll be a rare church, won't it, that has not at some point struggled with some of these. People who have their seat and really aren't keen on other people sitting in it somebody making a change to how you do the flowers or serve drinks and someone else getting upset about it, someone who's held a, a role like chair of trustees or secretary for many years and doesn't want to let go or genuinely believes that there will be no one to take their place, changing the number of hymns or the colour of the hymn books or changing anything else to do with music. It's a, a particularly sensitive area, I think, that one. Or maybe the behaviour of a difficult person. In the unlikely event of you ever having to deal with a difficult person <laughs> in your congregation or workplace, family systems thinking suggests an interesting way to approach the problem. Now, a standard response to a difficult person is to actually focus on the person. Families, in particular, tend to do this. A problem child, perhaps an uncle with a drink problem, the couple who don't get invited to family parties because no one likes them. <laughs> well, it must be their fault, mustn't it? Family systems theory suggests another approach, which is not to focus particularly on the so-called problem person, but instead look at the rest of the system. Look at all the interrelationships that are going on between the different aspects of that system. Focus on these instead. Consider different angles. Don't rush to conclusions. Experiment and reflect. Try some quite subtly different ways of being and then ponder on any changes that occur. Be lovingly curious about both yourself and others in the situation. Don't get stuck in just one 
point of view. I mean, one theory behind this um, might be that in a system there is pressure and one element of the system will almost act as a sort of pressure release for the rest of it. But in truth, the rest of it needs attention. Um, there's a lot more to consider about this. It's a lifetime's work, I think, to, to consider systems in this way. But time for another experiment. Again, it's completely non-threatening, simply moving your arm around. Um, but you could do with a pen or a pencil. If, if anybody hasn't got one, I brought some spoons, because it will work just as well with that. These are merely pointing objects, if anybody would want one. And again, listeners at home, you can do this in the comfort of your own home. <laughs> right. Hold the pen or spoon straight up in the air and pretend to draw a circle on the ceiling in a clockwise direction. And just make a nice clockwise circle. Keep drawing the circle and looking up. Now, slowly continuing to draw the circle clockwise, bring the pen just down a few inches at a time until it is in front of your face. Continue to circle the pen and slowly bring it down until you are looking down on top of it and continue to draw the circle while looking down on it. Okay, what direction is the pen moving in? <laughs> so, so what happened? We're in Australia. <laughs> We're in Australia. Some of us are still going clockwise, and we don't know. Yes. <laughs> That is an example of experimenter bias. So you keep, yeah, you keep that circle going all the time. You're starting clockwise, you're coming down, and then. So immediate reactions are things like, I must have done it wrong, or that was a ridiculous thing, Sarah. You <laughs> If you didn't change, then you probably weren't doing the, the experiment quite as I described it. <laughs> I don't want to say that you're wrong. <laughs> we can go into this in more depth later. Somebody whose circle changed from clockwise to anti-clockwise explain what happened. John? You're in a plane, you went from the North Pole to the South Pole. Uh-huh, yeah. Your perspective changed. That, that is all that happened there. If you start up there and you're looking at a clockwise circle, when you come down and you look from above... Remarkably, you're going anti-clockwise. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> it, simple, 
Simple experiments, but... <laughs> do you get a sense of, of, of the process of how we form our assumptions? That when we look at something from a particular point of view, it looks one way. When we look at it from a different point of view, it looks different. It's a, it's a very simple way for showing us how different vantage points give a different reality. Philosopher René Descartes tells us that we do not describe the world we see. We see the world we can describe. We view situations with a particular lens, the lens of our own reality, and it is very easy to believe that this is the only reality that there is. You might like to think of a system you've belonged to. Um, it's, it's quite handy to think of perhaps one in the past, one you've belonged to where you and others had very different perspectives. I... I think of my time as a teacher and the widely varying viewpoints of us teachers compared with the pupils, for example, all part of the same system, or even more compared with the dreaded SMT, the senior management team. It was only when I made friends with a newly appointed woman deputy head that I actually realised how dreadful her job was. <laughs> Up until then, I'd nursed a quiet fury about how poorly I thought we were being managed. And I suspect many of us have had those feelings. We may even have a slight feeling about our present government. <laughs> where... <laughs> so... One of the valuable insights that systems thinking can give us is that each element of a system is likely to have a differing perspective on their situation. Attempting to view the world from another point of view, it can be both challenging and illuminating. My interest in this whole area of studying congregations began with that congregation in the Midlands and their candles. I learned that techniques used by anthropologists the world over can just as well be applied to a 21st century group in England. And one of the techniques that is used is to create what's sometimes called a rich picture. It's a, a diagram, if you like, containing everything that you can find out about a situation without imposing any structure or analysis on it. Such a, t a picture could contain the stories you hear from the people involved. It could contain things, ideas, people, multiple connections. It might also contain more subjective elements of a situation, seeming conflicts perhaps, prejudices, queries, feelings. So we're going to have a few minutes break now, maybe just five minutes. This is going to be a quiet time. There'll be some music playing. On your yellow sheet, there is a box. And I'm going to invite you, if you wish, to just experiment with drawing a rich picture. Absolutely anything at all. Think of a system. I recommend one you care about. And then just draw something to represent all the different elements of it. You won't get very far with it, perhaps, but something may emerge. 
And if you'd rather just sit and think, that's great, or read the, um, the quotations there. We'll have a five-minute quiet time drawing. Thank you, Carl, uh, for music. Five minutes is, is not long to start drawing a rich picture, although, interestingly, the, the person who taught me how to do this said, don't give it more than 20 minutes and then go away from it and then come back, because it's in the process of drawing it that um, interesting new possibilities start to emerge. And there is no right or wrong way of doing them. I, there's a book you could have a look at later that um, gives more detail of this. So here was just one that actually I've never done before. This is the problem of our church roof. <laughs> and um, it's extremely interesting, I think, what you choose to include, where you choose to put the boundary of a system because of that issue that <clears throat> systems are always impinged on by other systems. They are rich and complex pictures. So I'll, I'll get rid of that now or else you'll be sharing my despair. Yes, many of us have leaking church roofs. One, one of the things that I learned from studying church congregations in this way is the great importance of issues like history and tradition, of status, of power, both explicit and implicit. Who makes financial decisions? Who has keys to the office? Who knows the story behind a particular vase or monument? Now, I think it's important for a church community to honour their ancestors. And in systems thinking terms, it's an imperative to understand the role that time plays in the life of any system. By understanding what's gone before, we're far more likely to be able to make effective interventions that allow what is waiting to emerge to be brought into the present. If we ignore the past or imagine it is irrelevant, we're strangely more likely to be stuck in it and to be ruled by it. Honouring our past allows us to move on and to respond to changing contexts in which all systems are based. Nothing can stay the same in this world, yet some systems behave as though it should. And why is all this relevant to our summer school theme of between the dreaming and the coming true? Well, I think it's because many of us are yearning for something, aren't we? 
Aren't many of us aware of the limitations of the systems in which we find ourselves? Aren't we yearning for something deeper, perhaps richer, perhaps more fulfilling? We long for closer connections with others, perhaps. We want to find more effective ways to sort out issues within our own families or other intimate relationships. We'd like our working lives to feel worthwhile, not simply a way to pay the bills. We hear what's going on around our world and we feel despair. We are concerned about changes happening before our very eyes in our own society and we feel powerless in the face of attitudes of fear and greed that we feel are profoundly wrong. We struggle to know how best to respond to warnings of climate change and environmental degradation. And if we are involved in a church community, well, we probably keep hoping that more people will come and join us and that we can be of greater use in this world. I think all of these situations can be illuminated if we develop greater powers of reflection and learn to create cycles of reflection leading to thoughtful action, leading to further reflection and onwards. Such a cycle can help us avoid getting stuck in disappointment or cynicism, or in thinking that things will never change. I had my uh, 60th birthday last year, and a friend gave me a perfect card which had written on the front, if you think the situation you're in is calm and well-organised, then you have probably not understood the situation. (laughs) And another way of saying this might be, we're in a mess. Now, we all know what a mess is. My desk would be a prime example. But in systems thinking, a mess is a useful technical term. A mess is different from a difficulty or even a problem. A difficulty can be sorted out, as can a problem, if you find the solution. But a mess, a mess implies deep complexity many elements, many contradictions. We are programmed as human beings to want to find solutions. We want answers, and most of us are very uncomfortable in circumstances where it really is not clear what is the best thing to do. Our schools generally train us to find answers and to expect to be able to find answers. Few of us have received any training in how to deal with complex messes in life. Messes are notable for their uncertainty, for the number of factors involved, and for the complexity and the contradictory nature of the situation. Systems thinking can help us to manage our own anxiety and to gain a sense of the multiple perspectives involved and to start to comprehend the complex and probably contradictory nature of the situation and start to experiment. Systems thinkers often talk of leverage points, ways, to, ways in, if you like, to start to generate change in a system. And interestingly for us, as people interested in life from a spiritual perspective, 
The most effective leverage points are often at the level of values and paradigm shifts, or indeed at a level beyond that, where we are no longer attached to any particular outcome, but are willing to help that which wants to emerge to be birthed. Was it Victor Hugo who said, nothing is more powerful than an idea whose time has come? Working at that level avoids the trap of unintended consequences, where an initiative designed to ease a problem actually causes a worse one. Our world is full of unintended consequences. The so-called war on terror is a particularly powerful example of it in recent times. You might also think of assorted government initiatives, particularly to do with targets. <laughs> targets tend to distort situation because, surprise, surprise, we humans like to meet a target and we'll do well-nigh anything to get there, including lying or focusing entirely on the end result to the detriment of those involved. There are endless examples of this. There have been various studies done on ambulance waiting times and the most unfortunate effects that setting a a limited amount of time in which an ambulance must arrive somewhere um, will cause people to behave in very odd ways and you know, not, not take into account for the fact that the ambulance people then have to do something when they get there. You're only measuring the arrival time. Another example is SATs tests in schools, where, surprise, surprise, teachers get better and better at working with children to do better in the tests, which then in some strange way devalues the test because they're getting better all the time. There's some very odd unintended consequences in our world. When, when I think about our spiritual communities and what we have to the, offer the world, I come back to some very simple ideas that, that we actually offer people a chance to join together, just as we have done this week. We offer people a chance to explore what it means to be human. We remind ourselves to treat all people as equals and to reach out a helping hand to others along the way. Some of of you will have picked up that I come from this part of the country. It's one of the reasons I love coming back to Hucklow for summer school and other events. I've lived most of my life in the west of Sheffield, just half an hour's drive from here. And when I first started working here at the Nightingale Centre running youth activities, my father smiled when he heard the name of the village, Hucklow. His father, my grandfather, had been part of a family that farmed the land below the, pa- the Barrel Pub. And it's, it's interesting, I think, how few people have gone to the Barrel Pub this week. But if you have not had that joy and seen the view there and tasted a half pint of their best ale, you have missed one of life's treats. My dad told me the story of his father, as a teenager, being given the job of riding into Sheffield on a pony to deliver some important documents. Having delivered the documents, he rode back the same day and was caught in a thick fog the kind that happens around here from time to time. He could see very little, and eventually 
He'd become totally disoriented, no idea where he was, night was falling, and knowing all too well some of the steep rock edges in Derbyshire, he decided that it was safest to curl up with the pony, sheltered a little bit by a dry stone wall. And so they spent the night. And when they awoke early the next morning, he found that they were just one field away from the farmhouse. Now, I think quite a few people are lost in our world today. Here are some of the issues that leave me feeling lost and uncertain. The plight of migrants seeking a better life. My concern that a welfare state and a health service that has cared so well for us as a generation might not survive to support our children and their children. A pressure to succeed where success is too often measured in material goods that don't really satisfy us for long. A fear of the power that is being gained by global corporations. And my question as to whether their power can still be tempered by wise government. The timescale needed to make wise moves to protect the environment on which we depend. I'm sure you could add to the list of issues that can leave us dispirited, lost and confused in a world that can seem harsh and unyielding. Let's turn to a poem that may offer some comfort. It's on the um, yellow handout if you want to read along. I found it in a, a book by David White, although it's not actually written by him. It's called Lost. It's on the back. It's a retelling of um, a Native American wisdom piece. And it speaks of being lost in the forest, but it applies just as well to other places of lostness in life. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, Here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. This theme of being lost and found has long been explored by spiritual teachers. And there are quite a few stories of the famous holy fool of Sufism, Mullah Nasruddin, that involve his beloved little old grey donkey getting lost. She often loses her way. Two stories. Nasruddin's donkey got lost in the nearby hills. And instead of looking for it, however... The mullah went around the streets of town shouting, Blessed be Allah, blessed be Allah. The townspeople knew how close Mullah Nasruddin was to his donkey. 
as well as the dangers posed to an animal up in the hills by the packs of wolves. So surprised, they exclaimed, How can you give thanks to Allah for having lost your donkey? Wouldn't you be better off asking for help? Ah, You definitely don't understand a thing, replied Nasruddin. I give thanks to Allah that I wasn't riding my donkey when it got lost. (laughs) (laughs) But we are lost, many of us, and Mullah Nasruddin, in truth, would miss his donkey terribly. But luckily he found her, only to lose her once again. And so he went into the market and he begged everyone to help him find it. He promised a reward of the donkey itself as well as a saddle and a harness to go along with it to whoever found the missing animal. When asked why he was going to so much trouble to find the donkey if he was just going to give it away as a reward, Muller explained, perhaps none of you knows the pleasure of finding something you've lost There is a pleasure, isn't there, in finding something you've lost. Sometimes I think I lose my keys deliberately. (laughs) Just to get that little frisson of excitement when they turn up again. (laughs) And sometimes that means finding ourselves once more after a time of feeling separated from who we truly are. I think some of us this week have regained a bit of a sense of who we are, or at least who we'd like to be. And there is a pleasure in helping someone else who is lost. And I think some of us have been helped by others this week to feel a little less lost, a little more certain of where we want to be going in our lives, or, or at least been given an awareness that others can be there for us in the difficult times. And there is, I believe, a spiritual law delightfully demonstrated by Nasruddin who is prepared to offer not only his lost donkey but also its saddle and harness to anyone who helps him find his lost donkey. Once we have found some precious gift, we do well to pass it on to others. We gain nothing if we live only for ourselves. We gain nothing if we keep something only for ourselves. What affects one affects all. And I live in hope that by reminding each other of this crucial truth, we might lift one another's burdens and help one another when we have lost our way. And in that spirit, I invite you to join uh, me, Mark and Carl, if you wish, in singing the chant which is again on the back of this yellow sheet. Let your little light shine, shine, shine. Let your little light shine all night long. There may be someone down in the valley trying to get home. And let's just repeat that a few times. Let your little light shine, shine, shine. Let your little light shine all night long. There may be someone down It may be me or it may be you. It may be a sister or a brother too. There may be someone down 
let your little light shine, shine, shine. Let your little light shine all night long. There may be someone down in the valley trying to get home. Get home. It may be me or it could be you. It could be myself. Your little life shine, shine, shine. Let your little life shine all night long. There may be someone down in the valley trying to get home. Trying to get home. It may be me or it may be you. It may be my sister or my brother too. Maybe someone down in the valley trying to get home. Trying to get home. One last time. Like the shine, shine, shine. Let your little light shine all night long. There may be someone down in the valley trying to get home. Maybe my sister or my brother too. There may be 